aloha. We're glad you've joined us for this Reunion Hawaii Church podcast. These teachings by our pastoral team are recorded live during our weekly services in Honolulu, Hawaii. We hope you will be blessed by this teaching. Uh, we're going to stretch you guys tonight. Is that okay? We're going to read a lot of the word, and then I'm going to start telling you guys some stuff that I bet most people in this room don't know, but I think you need to know it. The risk that you all have tonight is um, treating it as information instead of an invitation. Okay? Learn something. This is good. We want you to learn something, but uh, I'd rather you look at what happens tonight as an invitation into something the Lord's asking us to move more and more into as a house. So we're going to stretch you. How many of you were here last week, heard me talk last week? Okay, most of you, good. Um, one of the things that we started last week, I showed you my, my Jesus with the bald eagle t-shirt, right? God bless America. Uh, I love this nation. It's, I have strong opinions about this nation. I love it. It's, it's where I think the Lord is actually currently moving and because he moves everywhere, right? He, he doesn't pick and choose. He, he just, his glory fills the earth. And last week I talked to you guys just very quickly about how America was actually birthed in and through revival. And how uh, it's almost impossible to find even a 10-year stretch in our 250-year history that there hasn't been a world-shaking revival either happening here and being launched out or happening elsewhere and being brought here. And so for the past 250 years, this country has been um, slathered in the oil of the Holy Spirit, and these moves of God have been happening. Um, again, some of these things the Lord has birthed here and have impacted the world, um, things like Azusa Street, you know, the Jesus Movement, all these different um, revivals and moves of God that have happened over the years. There have been different men and women of God um, who have either been born here and sent out or were from elsewhere and brought here who started these amazing revivals, the healing revivals of the 50s and 60s, um, different uh, waves and streams that have come about because of one person's yes. I need to tell you that your yes is actually really important, and he can do more with one yes than he can with 10 million no's. So get ready because I think the Lord's asking for yeses from our church. You willing to give him a Yes. Give me a yes. What I want to hit tonight and then when I'm speaking to you guys again in the, in the near future, I want you to understand that many people don't know their destiny because they don't know their inheritance. And I'm speaking nationally. I'm speaking as an American that a lot of people don't know the destiny of this place because we have no idea the inheritance of this place. But I'm also speaking to you wherever you're from. I'm speaking to every generation who's ever walked the face of this earth. Like, like Misa was saying, find out what God is doing in our generation and commit your whole life to it. Because what else would be worth doing? What else would be worth doing? If he's doing this, why would I work on that? If he's doing this, how can I not give everything to come into agreement with what he's doing? And I read you this verse last week out of Acts 13. It's Acts 13, 36. It's talking about King David. And to me, this is one of the most stirring verses in the whole Bible. It says, for David, after he had served the purpose of God for his own generation, he fell asleep and was laid among his fathers and underwent decay. In other words, 
once he figured out and committed his life to what the Lord was doing in his generation, then he had completed his mission. Job well done, good and faithful servant. And I'm convinced that part of David's reward in heaven is that he served the purpose of God in his own generation. Not that he, you know, um, had a tabernacle, not that he wrote a bunch of psalms, not that he danced before the Lord. I think those are all wonderful, but I think his reward came because he said, God, what's on your radar and how do I partner with that? That's a great lesson for us to, to move in. And I think that's actually what we should consider success. Any other standard of, of success for my life is actually skewed. It's actually wrong unless it's, God, what were you doing and did I align with your will, right? When Jesus prayed, he said, your will, not mine. In other words, I will submit to whatever you're doing and I will take my hopes and my dreams and I'll put it all in this bucket of trust. It says, here, God, take me. Take everything I have. It's worth sacrificing those things. And then very briefly last week, I told us that um, we actually have this burden of responsibility. It's beautiful to honor those lives who have gone before us, the generations who have gone before us. And again, not to work toward their victory, not to make them a target, not to make them this ending point, but actually to stand upon their victory so that their ending point is our starting point. Right? And I told you, like, we have all this new merch. It's called Floors Not Ceiling because this is the mentality that we're, we're going after is that our starting point has to be standing on the shoulders of those who went before us because otherwise, what did they fight for? What did they live for? What did they die for? What did they commit everything for if we're going to ignore it and start thinking, well, they wrote 150 psalms, so maybe our generation needs to write 150 psalms. No, that's now our starting point. It's already been done. It's been completed because that was what God was doing in their generation. But how many of you know the Bible says that, behold, I am doing a new thing. Do you not perceive it? We are called to stand on the, the shoulders of generations who have gone, come before us, and their ceiling of standard has to become our floor. And if we want to start where they actually stopped and where they finished, then our Starting point must be their ending point. You with me? You good? Yeah. You're good. This is a bigger deal than I think people understand. This is a bigger deal than I think people recognize. And I told you that tonight we're going to be talking about the revival that happened in Ephesus, where uh, Paul went and later he wrote the book of Ephesians to this church. Other than what happened with Solomon in, King Solomon in ancient Israel, what happened in Ephesus is probably the second most radical, gigantic revival, this move of God that's ever happened in history. Solomon, that's a whole other, other level, but this is, we're going to dive into what happened in Ephesus. You can find it in Acts 19. I'm actually going to read a lot of this chapter to you tonight. And if you don't know, Ephesus uh, is in Western Turkey. Now it's in Western Turkey, and it was the second largest city of the Roman Empire. It was called the metropolis of Asia. And in Paul's day, there was about 300,000 people, and it was the center of commerce on the Aegean Sea, one of the most important cities of the ancient world. And at the center of Ephesus was uh, what was called the Temple of Diana, or the Temple of Artemis. Uh, the, the Romans called her Diana. She's this goddess. Uh, and the Greeks called her Artemis. And they built this huge temple. We have a slide of it brought live from the internet. 
Uh, it was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. This was one of the most massive structures ever built at the time. It's been destroyed since then. You can keep that up there for a while. But inside of this majestic-looking temple, some stuff happened that wasn't so majestic. The cult of Artemis, or the cult of Diana, actually centered their dark world inside of this temple. Diana was the ancient fertility goddess. Fertility. So take a guess what you think happened inside of this temple. What happened in this temple is that these hundreds and hundreds of paid, hired, they would consider themselves religious, we would consider themselves prostitutes, uh, they would meet in there so that they could bring people in and through sexual contact, join them with this goddess Diana. And the Romans and the Greeks um, would perform these sexual acts that would unite people in spirit with Artemis or Diana. Uh, a lot of what happened in that building was homosexual in nature. A lot of it was, had to do with pedophilia um, in those cultures. Um, most of the time, 12 years old was considered the age of consent. And so a lot of it was um, men with young boys having these spiritual acts with Artemis. So not the best place to spend a Saturday night, not something you want to bring your kids to. This was a dark place. And yet, this was actually uh, one of the reasons for the great financial success of Ephesus. This cult generated so much money because of the idol making. They would make these trinkets that looked like Artemis or Diana, and they would make, in our day and age, thousands and thousands, if not millions of dollars, and it helped drive the, the community. It drove the economy. And inside of this sanctuary, not only were, were those things evident, but this was also uh, what we would consider a sanctuary or a shelter city of sorts. In other words, those people who had committed crimes across the ancient world could come into this building and be completely safe from any sort of punishment or accountability. Uh, you could not be arrested inside of this building because it was considered sacred. So basically, it's a demonic temple in the heart of the city that drove the economy of Ephesus. I'm going to start reading uh, Acts chapter 19, and I just want to pause throughout reading this, this amazing passage and point some stuff out to us tonight. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and start. Acts chapter 19. We'll put it on the screen, but if you want to read in your Bibles, that's great. It happened that while Apollos was in Corinth, Paul passed through the upper country and came to Ephesus and found some disciples. He said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said to him, no, we haven't even heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. And he said to them, into what then were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. Say John's baptism. John's baptism. Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in him who is coming after him, that is, in Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands upon them, the Holy Spirit came on them. And they began speaking with tongues and prophesying. And there were in all about 12 men. I want to point out a few things. Um, this passage actually talks about two different baptisms. Right? John said, or they said, we were baptized into John's baptism, but then Paul comes and they're baptized into the baptism of Jesus. And that's a little confusing. Um, 
I don't know if we have a slide for this. I don't want to get super off track because we're coming back to Acts. But John the Baptist, when he came in Matthew chapter 3, verse 11, he said this to his friends. He said, as for me, I baptize you with water for repentance. John's own words, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, and I'm not fit to remove his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. So what kind of baptism was John's baptism? Water for what? Repentance. But what were the signs of Jesus' baptism? The Holy Spirit and fire. You know, water and fire don't mix. I don't know there's any science majors in the room, but those two things typically don't work well together. If you have a log on fire and you have a bucket of water and you bring them together, which one usually wins? The water, because it quenches fire. Later, and again, keeping Acts 19 in mind, we don't have a slide for this, but in John chapter 3, John again starts talking about his cousin Jesus, the Messiah, and he makes this very famous statement that a lot of t-shirts and bumper stickers actually get wrong. In John 3.33, John says he, referring to Jesus, he must increase and I must what? Decrease. He must increase and I must decrease. So many believers think that that means like I need to become nothing. I need to like hide in the shadows and Jesus gets all the attention and I need to become this tiny little worm that hides and he just gets to be the star of the show. Listen, Jesus will always be the star of the show. You're not a threat to him. You can't steal the show from him. But what's happening here in John chapter 3 Ultimately, this is talking about the transition from the Old Covenant, where John was the last of the prophets of the Old Covenant, transitioning into the New Covenant, which Jesus establishes on the cross. Ultimately, that's what John is talking about when it says, He, the bringer of the New Covenant, must increase, and I, the last of the Old Covenant, must decrease. But specifically, when he says, He must increase and I must decrease, John is talking about his ministry, his baptism of water for repentance, And he, Jesus, must increase who has a ministry or a baptism of the Holy Spirit and fire. Isn't that interesting? John was the first to admit. He says, he's he's greater than me. His ministry, his baptism, it, it far outweighs mine. So continuing on with Acts chapter 15. So Paul makes this distinction with these disciples. Like, hey, you just got John's baptism, but let me bring you Jesus' baptism of Holy Spirit and fire. And they start prophesying and speaking in tongues. Next, it says this. He's talking about Paul. And he entered the synagogue and continued speaking out boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. What was he reasoning and persuading them about? The kingdom of God. One more time. What was he reasoning and persuading them about? Was it repentance? The kingdom of God is not anti-repentance. That's part of it. It's just so much bigger. It's just so much more all-encompassing. Because repentance was John's baptism of water. Paul comes in and he starts reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God because that was the ministry, that was the baptism that Jesus came with, with fire and the Holy Spirit. Many in the church today still are pursuing John's baptism of water. Now listen, we believe in water baptism. That's not what this is talking about. This is something completely different. What I'm talking about is John's baptism was repentance only. 
And how many of you have ever been in environments where every week the only goal of the service is to get you to repent of your sins? Now, is repenting of your sins a bad thing? No, it's absolutely what he's paid for. Like repenting is such a beautiful thing. Last week, we spent a lot of time at the end of service repenting. We actually took time to repent as a family. But what I'm trying to get at is that so many of us have the same understanding as these 12 Ephesian disciples who said, we don't even know if there is a Holy Spirit. Many of us have not learned about the baptism of Jesus, which is Holy Spirit and fire. We're stuck in the water. We're stuck in repentance. Repentance is good, but that's the gateway, man. That is, that is the entryway. We have to know that the kingdom is bigger than salvation. Salvation will get you in. You cannot get in the kingdom without it, but it does not end there. If salvation was the goal, then he would kill you as soon as you got saved because what's the point of the rest of your life? Many have not yet learned about the baptism of Jesus, which biblically right here, including speaking in tongues and prophesying. It wasn't until the baptism of Jesus that people began to move in the supernatural. Continue on with the story. But when some were becoming hardened and disobedient, speaking evil of the way before the people, he withdrew from them and took away the disciples. So he takes away these 12 newly baptized in the spirit and fire disciples. And he goes and he starts reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. This took place for two years so that all who lived in Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Say all. This is profound because Paul and these 12 newbie Christians go to this school of Tyrannus and they start preaching and persuading about the kingdom of God. All, that word means every, all in Asia heard the word of the Lord. And it started with 12 people who weren't even filled with the Holy Spirit initially. And then they decide to go into the school and talk to people about the kingdom of God. I know a school like that. We just had an announcement about it. Kingdom living, God bless it. Let's continue. So God was performing extraordinary miracles. That is extraordinary, beyond ordinary miracles. I just want to have more normal miracles, but this is next level. This is extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that handkerchiefs and aprons were even carried from his body to the sick and the diseases left them and the evil spirits went out. This right here is one of those you don't know what you don't know until you know it moments. You don't know what you don't know until you see it with your eyes moment. Handkerchiefs, can heal diseases without anybody laying hands on the sick. And, and handkerchiefs can cast out demons, and people say, no, only God can do that. Welp. Welp. God wrote that, by the way. I think that this should set some standards in, in realms of uh, new, what's the word, standards of reality for us. This has to become a place of new possibilities that we didn't know was available. And I'm not saying like, here, let me sneeze in your handkerchief and then snap people with it. This wasn't, this wasn't like a fun, 
Woo, we're, we're healing people with, with cloths and rags. Basically what was happening is Paul was a working man and he's sweating it out in this school of Tyrannus speaking about the kingdom of God and the glory of the Lord was emanating off him. And just like with Jesus, where even if they touched the hem of his garment, they were made well. Just like that, the same glory that was on Jesus was on Paul. And so they figured, like, give me that handkerchief. Like, I know the glory that resides in this man. And science won't have an answer for you, but the kingdom isn't science. It's beyond it. The glory that was on Paul would go out and heal the sick. It would cast out demons because God was moving in Paul. Just something to think about. Let's keep going in this, in this chapter. But also some of the Jewish exorcists who went from place to place attempting to name or invoke over those who had the evil spirits, the name of the Lord Jesus saying, I adjure you by Jesus who Paul preaches. You know, these guys were super religious in their own minds. Like, I adjure you? People are like, first of all, what does that mean? I adjure you by Jesus to whom Paul preaches. Seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish, Jewish chief priest, were doing this. And the evil spirit answered and said to them, I recognize Jesus, and I know about Paul, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them and subdued all of them and overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded, or some translations, naked and bleeding. That's even worse. This became known to all, both Jews and Greeks who lived in Ephesus. Say all. This became known to all, both Jews and Greeks who lived in Ephesus, and fear fell upon them, and the name of the Lord Jesus was being magnified. I want the fear of the Lord in my life. Because the minute that we start to have the fear of the Lord, Jesus' name is magnified. And guess what? All people start to hear that. These seven sons of Sceva, they took a beating so bad that their clothes came off. I don't know how that's possible. I've seen beatings. I used to box in high school. I was a kid. I grew up in, you know, it wasn't a rough area, but we got into fights all the time. And I've never once seen someone get whooped so bad that their pants came off. Yikes. This is, this is crazy. I don't know what else to do with that, but that's crazy. Here's another thing I want to say about this. Um, both Satan and man will try to imitate and counterfeit spiritual things. Both Satan and man will try to counterfeit spiritual things. So we know that Satan has no power and no authority because God has all of it. And who has he given all power and authority to? To us. How does Satan get any power or any authority then? We give it to him. We come into agreement with him. So Satan has no power. He has no authority. He can only counterfeit things. He's not creative. He can't create. Only God creates. Satan is always looking to skew pure things into impure things. Satan is always trying to make fallen counterfeits of holy things. But the flesh, man, also tries to do this exact same thing. We try to counterfeit spiritual things. This is actually the basis of the religious spirit, is trying to move in the spirit through your flesh and trying to achieve these spiritual things through, through your own body. It doesn't work. And the truth is that we cannot fake spiritual things, at least not with God. We might fool people, but we won't fool the one who actually sees us for who we really are. Man might get fooled, but God won't. You know this. And I've seen this a lot um, where people 
pastors, preachers will ask others for sermon notes, for formulas all the time. And I get it. I understand that that's not wrong. That's not bad. But what often happens when when people ask somebody for their sermon notes, it's usually because they saw God moving through that person preaching and they want to have that same impact. So if I say the same words, if I use the same notes, the fruit should therefore be the same. But that's not how the kingdom of God works. That's how the kingdom of man works. When people ask for, hey, I need your sermon notes, or hey, I need the formula for how you do this or do that, what you're actually asking for is you're asking for the fruit of that other person's history with God, and you can't give that away. You can give away overflow, but you can't give away your history. History is between you and the Lord, and that stays there. In other words, overflow is free, but anointing is costly. Anointing is very costly. You can have someone's sermons notes, but you can't have their history with the Lord. And that, to get that anointing, to get that fruit, it, it doesn't require sermon notes or the perfect 12-point sermon. It requires a history with God, your history with God. Think about the parable of the ten virgins, where five were foolish and five were wise. What did the five foolish ones do? What did they spend their oil. They got rid of all their oil. What, were the wise, what made the wise ones wise? What did they keep? Their oil. Oil is, is a symbolic of the Holy Spirit. It's, it's his anointing. And I want to tell you, you can't give away your oil. In that parable, the foolish virgins are upset because they say things like, you must not love me. You need to share. That's not Christ. Like I'm, I'm stretching their words, but that's essentially what they're saying. And yet what made the wise virgins wise is they said, I can't give you my oil or I won't have any for myself. Listen to me. It's not selfish to protect the anointing that God has put on your life. It's actually wisdom. Another sermon, another time. Back to Acts 19. Here we go. Many also of those who had believed kept coming confessing and disclosing their practices. And many of those who practiced magic brought their books together and began burning them in the sight of everyone. And they counted up the price of them and found it 50,000 pieces of silver or 50,000 drachmas. So the word of the Lord was growing mightily and prevailing. Because of this mighty demonstration of God's power in Ephesus, keep that slide up there, it says many came confessing and disclosing their practices confessing, telling things that were hidden in darkness. They were renouncing these demonic rituals. They were repenting of their sin. Now it says they, it, that the stuff they came and burned was equal to 50,000 drachmas or 50,000 pieces of silver. Um, one piece of silver was the equivalent to one day's wages in those days. So this was 50,000 days wages worth of you know, magic books, spells, all this kind of garbage. 50,000 days of wages, that's almost 200 years of wages. So if you worked for the next 200 years, that would be about 50,000 drachmas. And if you do the math, according to, like if you assumed, all right, a drachma is a minimum wage, let's just say that. What happened here is 50,000 pieces of silver was somewhere between five and six million dollars of books and, and all this stuff that they brought and burned up. But again, that's just how much the books cost. That's just the books. That's not the same as how much income was lost for burning the source of their income. You burn your books, you're burning your income. Six million dollars of books plus 
the exponentially higher associated income that you're losing from those books. Burning these books was their means to making money. And it wasn't just throwing out demonic books. It was an absolute lifestyle change. Everything had to change because their books were gone. Their income could no longer come from that source of income. And yet they decided that burning demon their demonic livelihood or even having no livelihood was better than returning to their sin. That's a move of God. These people weren't going back. And again, I told you that in Ephesus, uh, the population about that time was roughly 300,000 people. And in this two-year span, from about 53 to 55 AD, when Paul and these 12 new spirit-filled believers go into the city, again, 300,000 total people in the city. Over those two years, 100,000 were converted. 100,000, that means one-third of this metropolis converted to Christianity. One out of every three people became a Christian. And this was a city of extreme moral corruption. And yet one out of every three people was saved, delivered, renounced their ways. Cult members were cleansed and set free. Prostitutes were forgiven. They were adopted as kingdom sons and daughters, that should give us the chills. A lot of revivals, a lot of moves of God throughout history, including many, many, many in the United States, um, had that same exact thing happen. The two great awakenings, the Cane Ridge revival, uh, Azusa Street, um, some of the other, like Jesus people movement, like all of these things. Witches would come and burn their books. People would come and bring their drugs and throw it on the altar. Prostitution would virtually stop in these major cities. Imagine New York City, where there was no drugs, no corruption, no, no crime. Drinking um, bars, saloons would dry up. No one would go to them. Gambling would stop across this nation. Uh, police stations, many times in our history, in this country, police stations were shut down and turned into churches because no one was committing crimes. They didn't know what to do. They needed to fill that space, so why not turn it into a church? Okay, I want to I read you a seemingly unrelated scripture out of Exodus 24, and then I'm going to ask you a question, so pay close attention, very close attention. No sleeping in the front row, you... Exodus 24. Then Moses went up to the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. And the glory of the Lord rested on Mount Sinai. And the cloud covered it for six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses from the midst of the cloud and to the eyes of the sons of Israel. The appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a consuming fire on the mountaintop. Moses entered the midst of the cloud as he went up the mountain, and Moses was on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. Were you paying attention? Okay. Here's the question to you. That cloud that looked like a consuming fire, do you think it was real or not real? You say it out loud. You think it was real? Do you think that cloud was actual or a metaphor? Actual, okay. Do you believe that the sons of Israel saw, they actually saw this 
cloud of glory of the Lord, the, covering the entire mountain, looking like flaming fire. Do you think that was what they actually saw with their eyes? Are you sure? Okay. The reason I'm asking you this is because too many believers think that the God of the Bible could do these things then, but he doesn't do these things now. It's easy to believe he did that three to 4,000 years ago, but we would scoff at the idea of him doing that today. How do I know that? I've heard the scoffs. I've had the conversations. The, the sad truth is that many believers will embrace the Bible as a storybook, but not as a reality. Too many believers will use these type of things as ceilings and not floors. Listen, this was a lesser covenant that Moses was under. It was less than the covenant that we're living in. And God revealed his glory in a way that covered a literal mountain where people actually saw this flaming cloud over this mountain. In all of Israel, the eyes of the sons of Israel saw it happen. And you told me that's literal. Later in Exodus, you can take that down. God tells Moses to go up Mount Sinai. And what does God give Moses on top of Mount Sinai? The Ten Commandments. But before Moses goes up Mount Sinai, God says a few things. He says, no one is allowed to go up with you, and nobody is to be seen on the mountain except you. Okay, that was the first thing he said. And then God tells Moses this, not even the flocks and the herds of animals may graze in front of the mountain. God was too holy when he came in this literal cloud of fiery glory. He was too holy and he was too pure. And his, his glory would have killed the animals, even grazing cows and sheep that were close to him. We're going to revisit that in a second. I need you to remember that. Floors, not ceilings. Well, I want to talk to you guys. Are you ready to get stretched now? Because I'm going to stretch you. Turn to your neighbor and say, get ready. Look at your other neighbor and say, you're not ready. Get ready. I want to talk briefly about one of the greatest moves of God in history. It happened in Wales. It was called the Welsh Revival. And it was um, somewhere around 1904, 1905 is when it became well known. And I just want to point out at that time, um, there were no, people didn't have electricity in their houses. Okay, this was over 100 years ago in a small nation in, um, where is that, Europe? Great Britain, that's what I was trying to think of. The Welsh Revival. During this revival, um, a huge portion of the Welsh population was saved. They were delivered. This is considered one of the greatest, biggest, largest scale revivals in world history. And if you read about the meetings that happened during this revival, and I'm going to read you a few things and quote a few things. Um, what people would say is that if they had a meeting during this revival, three-fourths of it, three-quarters of those meetings, um, there was very little preaching. Three-fourths of the meeting considered, consisted of singing. And here's the wild thing. This is where it starts to get wild. No one used hymn books. No one sang the same songs. No one controlled the meetings. Nobody led from the front. Nobody was the guide throughout the night. Um, in the purest sense of the word, the Holy Spirit led those meetings. And we know this. There's a difference between a pastor leading a room and a Holy Spirit leading the room. And give me the Holy Spirit. In these gatherings that changed world history, um, nobody opened the meeting. 
with a fun, attention-grabbing intro. There were no greeters at the door. There were no parking attendants. And believe it or not, this is probably the most shocking part. There were no video announcements. There was no kids' church. It says people would walk in and burst into prayer and praise. They had no control over themselves. People would cry out the name of Jesus. And in some of the meetings, uh, some of the leaders wrote this. These men are not praying to be heard of men. It doesn't matter to them what people think of them. They're thinking about the answer and not the hearers. I need to be very clear. God does not need our help. He does not need our control. He does not need all the things that we think have to happen at church on Sunday. He's just fine without that stuff. There's nothing wrong with it, but man, we got to take those things off these idolatry thrones. I just want to say this. If we ever feel the need to stop a meeting every 10 minutes to explain what the Lord is doing so that people can intellectually understand and make them feel comfortable, that's the American church model. That's not the kingdom of God church model. Doing that actually ministers to the flesh instead of ministering to the Lord. If God's not mysterious and we can explain everything away, then, then maybe we're missing out on something because his nature is mystery. He's shrouded in darkness. I have no problem with the idea of shepherding a room, with, with shepherding the people and helping them come to an understanding. But listen, he is the great shepherd. Let me, let me rephrase that. He is your great shepherd. I'm not. He's also the comforter. He's also counselor. And interrupting his movement to explain things is a sorry substitute for allowing the shepherd to shepherd his people. It's a sorry substitute for allowing the comforter to come and comfort his people. And so during these Welsh revival meetings, it says that waves of power would sweep through these gatherings, these masses of people, and the crowds would break out into prayer and praise. And they would each be singing their own song. They would each be giving their own praise. And yet, the thing that was noticeable about this is that everyone was in harmony. It sounds like a recipe for chaos. If I just said, everyone stand up and praise the Lord. Everyone stand up and pray your own prayer. And yet, it says this, without even the slightest confusion, these meetings took place. Everyone was absorbed with God. In the midst of it, a man here, a woman there would yield to God. Say, yield to God. A man here, a woman there would yield to God and for a few minutes stand up and give praise they had found in the Lord. This is the power of yielding. This is the power of submitting to the Lord's heart and the Lord's agenda. I said this last week. You cannot create a move of God. You cannot create revival. What you can do is yield to a move of God. You can submit to his movement, but you cannot create it. And in Wales, during this revival, and hundreds and hundreds of other moves of God throughout history, even though everyone prayed their own prayer and everyone sang their own songs, because man was not singing to man but to God, it actually created harmony. People say, that doesn't make sense. Welcome to the kingdom of God. Doesn't make sense. Doesn't need your sense. And it would actually bring harmony and not division or confusion. 
And some of these meetings for a stretch of time were so jam-packed that one of the leaders said he stood in a meeting for three hours wedged between people so tight that he couldn't even lift his hands at all. Okay, you're like, okay, that's not bad. Well, get ready. (laughs) Get ready. Take off your unbelief hat, throw it over there, burn it in that pile. We're going to get 50,000 drachmas worth of unbelief hats. We're going to burn it, and we're going to put on our belief hats. In these gatherings... It says that people would be lit with heaven's light when the Spirit of the Lord came over them. And their faces would begin to glow. People say, that's not biblical. That's literally biblical. We just read about it. Moses going up the mountain. And what happened to Moses when he came down from the mountain? What was with his face? Shining. It was so bright they had to put a veil over it. And again, we'll believe it in the pages of the Bible, but we will not believe it if it happens in reality. Huh? And it says that the light that was emanating from people's faces was so bright that it was more radiant than the light on the sea and on the land. And people began to be impacted by this move of God. And all across Wales, bars shut down, courthouses had to close because they had no cases to try, jails converted into churches. Some of you have read about this revival. It's incredible. I challenge you, go read about it. And the Lord's presence would radiate through town after town. And there's stories about people coming through town who didn't know anything. They didn't know up from down. They didn't know God. And they would enter these bars. They would enter these saloons and order a drink. And the presence of God was so heavy in the bar that they would leave their drink. They wouldn't even touch their drink. They would fall down on the ground and repent and get saved just because God was there in that bar. We'll say, well, he'll show up in church, but let's avoid bars. Well, if we're avoiding going into bars and bringing the light, who, who's going to bring light into the bars? I'm not saying go to the bars and get stupid and get drunk. What I'm saying is you are the light of the world. Jesus says, I'm the light of the world, and now you are the light of the world. In Wales, churches began to gather nightly. And listen, I'm going to say some stuff. I need you to remember this was before they had electricity. So they would gather each night. And people would know that it was time to gather because when they were walking down streets uh, from the church and from some of the houses, this flaming blue light would emanate the houses. And when they saw the light, they knew God was moving. It was time to go to church. People walking down the streets would see the, the windows light up to these facilities and they just knew, okay, it's time. We haven't even stretched you yet. And before I start really stretching you, I need, I need you to hear this. I need you to hear this with an open heart. I've had a lot of believers tell me that signs and wonders are unnecessary. They're unneeded. What's the point? Isn't the Bible enough? Yes, the Bible is enough for us, but apparently it's not enough for God. <laughs> supernatural signs and wonders are the byproduct of a supernatural God. And the man himself, who the story comes from, Craig Pankow, you're in the house tonight. Craig taught me the most, one of the most important lessons. Uh, if it's not supernatural ministry, what kind of ministry is it? Do you want to do natural ministry? Go right ahead. That's literally what the religious spirit does. But if you serve a supernatural God and you are called to look like him, and when we behold him, we become like him, then your ministry better look like his ministry, and it's supernatural. We don't have time to dissect that point, but in the Welsh Revival, um, it said that entire, an entire district was converted. 
And it was because of this supernatural activity, which we're going to talk about, that'll stretch it in just a minute. An entire district, that's like no one was left unsaved. All. They emptied the jails. They emptied the gambling halls. It's the equivalent to the county of Honolulu being saved. And on the streets of Chinatown and up in Waianae, the overwhelming glory of God would invade and drug deals would stop and child trafficking would end and homeless camps would turn into camps of revival. That's what's happening. That's what I'm talking about. This is what happened in Wales. It's happened here in the United States. And hear me, we have to get past the confines of what we're comfortable with because I'm going to make you very uncomfortable in a minute. And we have to get past the confines of what our expectancies of God are because he's not afraid to do things that make you very uncomfortable because what if he wants to do something different than what you're used to? You're going to let him? You're going to fight that because it's uncomfortable? So during this Welsh revival, there was this phenomenon, a supernatural phenomenon called the Egrin Lights. And it started one day while these thousands of people were being converted. Um, this huge blue light, like an aurora. You guys know Aurora Borealis, the northern lights. You ever see pictures of this? This huge blue arc, it says it moved across the sea and began moving through the neighborhoods. And it was very cloud-like. And wherever it would pass, bales of hay would catch on fire as it passed. Barns would burst into flame if it hovered over the barns. And it came and it would rest over different areas and no one knew what it was. And it, the people reported it saying it looked like blue flame and cloud. Well, that would never happen. It just happened in Exodus. We believed it when all of Israel saw it happen. This cloud, this fiery cloud of glory. He's doing it again. And wherever this, this cloud, this fiery cloud of glory would go, wherever it would rest, the grass would be killed wherever this cloud landed. And animals, cattle, and sheep would be killed if they crossed through this cloud, but men would be unharmed. Listen to me. Cattle were killed by the glory. We just read about that with Moses in Exodus. God said, don't even let the cattle come close because it'll kill them. His holiness was designed to be carried by men and no one else. This is what got David in trouble when he brought the Ark of the Covenant back into Israel. And he put the Ark, he put the glory of the Lord on oxen. It, it caused irreparable damage. It caused so much chaos because his glory was supposed to reside on men. So this cloud of fire, this, this glory cloud, it would sometimes disappear. It would sometimes reappear. And it would mostly happen on Saturdays and Sundays. And that one of the crazy things about this cloud, they said it was easily dispelled. Do you know what that means? It means people would do things that would make it go away and disappear. And they said people described that if it was disturbed by loud noises, the blowing of horns, the discharging of guns, that the cloud would dispel, it would lift, and it would depart. Do you understand what I'm saying? What I'm saying is that glory can be hindered by man's interruption. It was always meant to be carried by men, and when people treat him lightly, when they treat the glory of the Lord lightly, it lifts. He's not afraid to lift. And hear me, the cloud dispelled because of distraction. The cloud dispelled because of an interruption to the purity of God's plan. 
And it, it, they said it was never affected by weather. It was only affected by man's interruption. And we say, like, signs and wonders aren't necessary. Well, signs and wonders saved an entire country, an entire nation of Wales was almost 100% saved because of some radical stuff that started happening. People would weep and wail in repentance and come to salvation, not because a word was preached. Most of the meetings, they didn't even preach. But because of a supernatural God who was doing supernatural things, they were swept into a supernatural salvation and lived a supernatural lifestyle. They said that this cloud would hover during the day, but it would only move at night. And when it first appeared for the first, I think, week or two weeks, inside of this blue cloud of flame, they said it looked like there was a person in the middle, and they saw some little lights scattering around the large light in many colors. And if you read about this description, man, it sounds just like Jesus in his glory, with the angels surrounding him, ministering to him. These angels of light. It sounds just like what Milton mentioned during the opening tonight, where Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego went into the fire, and there was a fourth man in the fire. That's what this sounds like. And they said sometimes the cloud would shoot out in 10 different directions, then come back together in a loud clap. Sometimes the cloud would be moving in a direction, and it would follow people, and it would rest on people. And when they turned left, the cloud would go with them. And then when they went right, the cloud would go with them. And when this would happen... Uh, thousands of witnesses. You can read the newspaper articles about this. Thousands of witnesses described that the person that the cloud was resting and was resting upon would become terrified and bringing them into deep repentance. That's the fear of the Lord. Sometimes this blue fireball would rise from the ground in a field or in a church and then burst in all directions. And people would come and encounter this and just because they saw this, they would get saved. And what would happen is thousands of people began to come to Wales, saved and unsaved. They would come far and wide to see and newspaper reporters would come specifically to disprove it and they would get saved in their investigation of these things. They would encounter the Lord, repent, And they would become enraptured in his glory and fall on their knees and give their hearts to the Lord, even the doubters. And after this, the cloud would rest on some people, and it says they were so shaken from the encounter that they were unable to work and unable to function for days on end. The glory was overwhelming. It had an overwhelming impact on those that it rested on. Sounds kind of biblical to me. The kabod, the weight of his glory. One of the leaders of the Welsh revival, her name was Mary Jones. Here's a very quick story about her. It says that this blue cloud would appear as a mysterious star in the air before her, pointing out the way that she would go. And it wasn't like any ordinary star being infinitely more powerful and looking like a brilliant white light hung in the air only a short distance in front of her. She followed the path it indicated and won converts by the revival message she was taking around the neighborhood. And if you read about this, what would happen is she would go and this cloud would just follow her. It would show her the way, it would rest on her, and people would see it and come to the Lord. Do you know how many thousands of people got saved because they saw this? People say, that's not real. Well, it happened with Jesus. It happened with the wise men. They followed a a star just like this. And once it says the star appeared on the chapel of their meeting place, and it would would be in the middle in this huge 50-foot flame. It It would cause light. It would come inside the room. 
Again, it would follow Mary Jones to all of her meetings from that point on. And then uh, the person who's kind of considered the main leader of the Welsh Revival, his name is Evan Roberts, this cloud, this fireball would rest on him everywhere he went. People reported seeing outside the church 50-foot-high flames over the church. It would encircle the church. It would move. It would grow. It would shrink. And again, these flames were spiritual. These weren't natural. It wasn't burning up the building. But just like Israel, everybody's eyes saw it. Thousands of people saw this. People passing by who weren't saved saw this. Newspaper reporters who didn't believe in it saw this. And you can read the articles online. But here's, here's what I want to get at. This isn't just in the pages of your Bible. This isn't just what happened in Wales. This has happened thousands of times throughout history. You read about the revival in Topeka, Kansas that led to the Azusa Street miracle or revival. Uh, flames would rest on the building. Azusa Street, day after day, fire trucks would come because everyone would see these high flames over this church building. And yet they weren't natural flames. The church never burned. It was this supernatural flame. You read about Asbury College in the 1970s when they had this move of God. There was flames over the chapel. Fire engines would come uh, all throughout history. We had this happen at Kingdom Living one night where three students said that they saw flames when they came in the building. So do it again, God. Other times during this Welsh revival, a fireball would actually appear in the sanctuary and move down the aisles and people would get saved. People would um, repent of their lifestyles as this thing moved past them. I mean, it's the glory of God. When the glory moved past them, they would repent. They would give up their lifestyles of sin. They would get delivered their bodies would be healed. One of my favorite generals of faith to read about, his name's William Branham. He had the same thing happen. NASA sent people, sent scientists to investigate because they thought it was false. And they all reported, we saw it with our own eyes. That when he would preach, either a, a, this wasn't super common, but it was common enough where it happened at quite a few of his meetings. A, a fireball would appear in the sanctuary and would move down the aisles. And people, after it passed by, they, the hospitals would bring sick people, people on, you know, on hospital beds who were dying, as this fireball, which sometimes appeared as a cross, other times was a, a ball, as it would go, people would get completely healed, get out of their hospital beds. People would get out of wheelchairs and dance across the room. Blind people would see. Well, I believe about it in the Bible. I just can't possibly think this happened. This happened, has happened over and over, and it's happening now on this planet. That's what I want to tell you. When some of these Welsh preachers would begin to, to preach, this cloud of glory would appear over them, whether they were inside a building or outside. This is, this is wild to me. Of all the things, none of this offends me at all, except for what I'm about to tell you. This part actually offends my flesh, and I've had to ask the Lord, like, why is this so bothersome to me? But during this time, the again, sort of the pronounced leader of the Welsh revival, his name is Evan Roberts, he wouldn't even attend most of the meetings. He was so enraptured in prayer that he would skip the meetings and people would try to come and get him and he'd say, I can't go, I can't go, I need to stay here and pray. And I want to tell you, that's literally the opposite of the celebrity pastor culture that so many people embrace. He wouldn't even come to the meeting where the, the cloud of glory was appearing because he felt this burden. I just need to pray. I just need to intercede for that meeting that's happening seven houses up the street. And 
what would happen is, you know, when the windows lit up and this blue glory light would appear, people would come, and then, you know, six, seven, eight hours, most, these meetings weren't 45-minute church services. These would start at 6 p.m. and go till 6 a.m. But what they noticed is that whenever these things would start and then whenever these things would end, after a while, what they figured out was that the cloud of glory would start moving and ministering when Evan Roberts started praying. And whenever he stopped praying, it would lift. That just wrecks me. That wrecks me. That offends my flesh because we have created so many cultures where it says, and I'm, I'm, I'm in this boat, man. If God's doing something, I want to go. I want to see it. I want to be right in the middle of it. And I think that's right. I'm not preaching against that. I actually think that's right. But how many times do we let the excitement in our flesh say, like, I have to do that when God might be saying, I actually need you to be the one who sustains this from your bedroom. I actually have a greater reward for you not going down to this thing and being in your closet and just interceding and asking me to keep moving. And when you're done, I'll be done, Evan. God's unchanging. His, his name, his nature remain constant. He's not afraid to crash through the walls of our comfort zones. He's not afraid to crash through our clocks and the norms of our region, as I've been told. The norms of the region didn't die on the cross. The clock didn't die on the cross for us. Jesus did. And if we think that we have to have some slick service for 60 minutes and not a second over, and if we need to time our worship songs and time our sermons, and make sure that our announcements only go this far. What are we doing? There wasn't one video announcement in Azusa. There wasn't one video announcement in the Welsh Revival, in the Hebrides Revival, in the Cane Ridge Revival, in the Awakenings. They didn't have fancy lights and air conditioning. They had hunger. And they had a yielded heart. And they had broken vessels. He's not afraid to offend our minds because that will reveal our hearts. And so I want to end here. When, when Paul came to Ephesus, and again, before this revival, before this move of God, before the glory of the Lord overwhelmed the city, Paul started with 12 people getting filled with the Holy Spirit. probably in a little room, probably much smaller than this. And what he did is he brought the baptism of Jesus. And within two and a half years in Ephesus, it became one of history's greatest revivals. Ephesus was actually considered unrecognizable after this revival. Wales paled in comparison to Ephesus. And again, how did Paul do this? Yes, with God, but what did that look like? Did he preach a lot of comfortable church at the movie sermons? Did he focus on making sure people didn't get bored? Did he focus on making sure that people got in and out within 80 minutes of the service starting? Remember, it says that Paul went and he would speak at the school of Tyrannus, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. In other words, I think Paul got fed up 
with people in the temple rejecting the kingdom. And so he said, I need to persuade them. I need to argue with them. I need to bring Matthew eleven twelve. 12, right? The kingdom of God suffers violence, and the violent lay hold of it through force. He decided, I'm not going to watch this happen. I'm not going to watch the city burn. I'm going to do something about it. And he didn't start with 100,000 people. He started with 12. So again, and raise your hand. How many of you learned something today? Good. Don't let this become just information. This has to be an invitation. This has to be a ceiling for someone else's generation that we get to stand on as a floor. This has to be shoulders of Evan Roberts and Mary Jones and the thousands and thousands of people who paved the way 120 years ago in that particular revival. It has to be the shoulders that we stand on in the hundreds of revivals that have happened since then. It has to be the shoulders we stand on on our moms and dads' generation. We owe it to the Lord, but I'm telling you we owe it to the cloud of witnesses as well. I don't want to get to the end of my life and see the next generation say, like, wow, we're going to have to fight for freedom. No, I'm going to fight for freedom for them. I don't want them to think I need to fight for purity. No, we will fight for purity for them, but they have to stand on our shoulders. That's the expectation, but it's a two-way street. The expectation is we stand on those shoulders that have went before us. This has to be an invitation for us to start where someone else finished because that's the kingdom of God. It only expands, it only increases, but we have to take part in that journey. I heard uh, a short story from uh, Michael Koulianos this week. I just loved it. It was an old sermon he gave. And uh, because of Michael's father-in-law, who's Benny Hinn, Benny Hinn knew everybody. He was like, you know, celebrity pastor of the 80s and 90s. He knew the who's who. And because of that, Michael had access to a lot of very well-known Christians. And uh, he was telling this story about this very famous musician who used to be Catherine Kuhlman's uh, pianist that Michael um, befriended. And this guy kind of took Michael under his wing for a while and would just sit for hours and talk to him. And one day they were in the middle of playing golf, and this guy who was very old at the time was losing his vision. And he said, Michael, will you pray for me? And they're playing golf. He's like, here now? He said, yeah, I need you to pray for me. And uh, Kuliano said he got really nervous because like, they're, you know, they're having fun. They're on the golf course. It's not a room with dim lights and cool you know, screens and drums. And the guy looked at him and said, no, you're going to pray for me right now, and you're going to heal me right now. He said, this old musician said, our fathers needed background music to heal the sick, but your generation doesn't need that any longer. Guys, we have a, a mandate to have floors, not ceilings. Everybody in this room, you're a Christian because someone else prayed for you to be a Christian. If you're like, well, no one in my family was ever a Christian. Did you know that one of the main jobs of Jesus on his throne in heaven and one of the main jobs of the Holy Spirit is to intercede for you? So you're like, well, my mom and dad never prayed for me. The Holy Spirit's been praying for you since before the foundations of the earth. Jesus Christ himself has been praying for you since before you were formed in your mother's womb. Somebody prayed you into being a Christian. And I'm going to tell you, what Misa said during um, announcements is exactly the, the point. It's exactly the goal, is that we can't let this stay in this room. 
This room is my calling, but this is not your calling. I'm called to feed the sheep. Guess what? You get to now go out. You have to take this. You have to take this. This can't be cool facts. This can't be information. This can't be a history lesson. This has to be your blueprint. And maybe in some future weeks, we'll talk about some other really amazing things that have happened in the past 50, 100 years right here under our noses. And it's shocking to me. Why don't we talk about these things more? Why do we want people to not understand what's possible? I don't want to look at the Lord and say, well, I didn't know what was possible. I didn't know what I didn't know. Maybe you should have showed me, God. And he's like, I'm not going to read a book for you. I'm not going to listen to a podcast for you. I'm not going to learn about your fathers for you. He'll pave the way, but he's not, he wants to co-labor. Will you guys stand up? We're going to close. We're going to pray. I think some of us need the baptism of Jesus tonight. It's a baptism of fire. It's a baptism of the Holy Spirit. Close your eyes. There's nothing special about this. I just want to eliminate distractions. I need you to see him face to face. You can't have the baptism of Jesus without Jesus. He's not going to baptize you if he's not in the room. So I need you to actually see his face. I need you to see the proximity of our Savior. I need you to see the proximity of our Messiah. He's not coming down from heaven to look for you. You're seated beside him in heavenly places. You don't have to look very hard or very far to see the one you're seated beside. And I need you to see that when he was hanging on that cross and there was blood, when that blood was flowing down his face and that blood was dripping off of his body, he looked up and he was looking for you. And when that stone rolled away, he wasn't looking for the blue skies after being hidden in a dark cell for three days. He was looking for you. The risen, glorified Christ, who Rachel was saying, his eyes are like fire, his hair like wool, his voice like water. He's looking for you. And so Jesus, bring your baptism. You paid for this. These are your kids. Baptism of Jesus. Fill this room. Holy Spirit, have your way. Holy Spirit, come. Fire, come. I don't care if you're not feeling it. Don't go by your feelings. Turn your affections to him. Receive him tonight. Receive whatever he wants to do. Some of you need to repent. Some of you need to repent of idolatry, things you've placed on a throne that no one should have access to but Jesus. Father, turn our hearts. Let us see the way that you see. Show us your glory. You showed Moses your glory under a lesser covenant. You said that fades, that pales in comparison to this covenant. So show us your glory. Show us your goodness. Show us your kindness. Bring us to repentance. Bring us to life. Bring us to light. Scales fall from eyes right now. Burn up things that need to be burned, Jesus. That's what the fire does. It brings refining. It refines. And so if you have the courage, say it out loud. Say yes. Refine me. Jesus, refine us. Bring us closer to you. We will not settle for lesser things. We will not settle for what we can do on our own. This has to be your supernatural kingdom, your will being done in our midst. So we glorify your name. We glorify your name. Lamb who was slain. We glorify your name. Beautiful one. His arm is not too short to save.
bodies be healed right now. Jesus, come get your reward. You paid for this. Emotions be healed. Minds be healed. Mind of Christ invade this room. I just claim truth. Scripture says you now have the mind of Christ. So now, mind of Christ, invade this room. Change thoughts. Change mindsets. Change hearts. God, give us your glory. You said you wouldn't share your glory with another, but we're not another. We're your beloved. So we celebrate you, Jesus. We celebrate you. You're worthy of every praise ever sung. You're worthy of the highest praise, the highest accord. It's your name that has power. It's your name that tramples the serpent. It's your name that heals kingdoms. It's your name that brings us to light. So the name of Jesus be magnified, magnified in this place. Start with us, God. Start with us. Start here. Start now. Why not? We're not going to settle for less. You're perfect. You're perfect. I'm blown away by your perfection, Jesus. You know, we don't do this much, but grab the hand of your neighbor. This has to be corporate. This has to be more than a me thing. This has to be an us thing. Holiness come. Glory fall. Father, we just bless the person standing on our right. We bless the person standing on our left. We declare that they are a temple, a living temple, a tabernacle of the Holy Spirit. And so, Holy Spirit, have your way with the person standing next to me. Have your way with the person on my right. Have your way in the person on my left. Come receive your reward in this person. Come receive what you've paid for in that person. Worthy God. Glorious. Glorious. If you need to, tell him he's glorious. Tell him he's majesty. Don't move past him. He's why we came. Find him. Glorious one. Holy one. Pure one. Righteous one. Can I get some prayer ministers up here? If you're on the prayer team, prayer team, come up here. I want you to minister. Yeah. Glorious one. Yeah. Find his eyes of fire. Let him minister to you. Don't move past him. We're not dismissing. Don't move past him. Start praying for your neighbor again. I feel like he's saying, pray for your neighbor. If he could do it with 12 in Ephesus, he can do it with 150, 200 in Honolulu. Call for the glory of the Lord to rest on them, on their homes, on their houses, on their families. Open your lips. Actually speak these prayers. Don't let this be a heart prayer. Father, rest on the person on my right. Rest on the person on my left. Let the kingdom of God flow through this person. Bring them into their calling. Bring them into their destiny. Let the glory of the Lord rest. 
light of the world, shine on this person next to me. Start praying for the, the, the call of the Lord on their life. You don't have to know it, but just start agreeing with it. There's nothing more powerful than giving an amen to what the, less, the Lord is saying yes over. Start asking that he would move mountains in those people's lives on your right and your left. Move mountains for them. Open doors for them. Shift things in the spirit, God, that would open physical doors on the pers- for the person on my right and the person on my left. Pray for unusual favor to fall on them. Keep going. Keep praying for them. Pray for them like you would want them to pray for you. He has to be worthy. He has to be worthy of it. He has to be worthy of it. Find his heart just for a minute. Find his heart. Think about John, the beloved, putting his head on Jesus' heart. He didn't do that to hear his voice. He did that to hear his heart. More God, more God. Jesus, we listen to your heartbeat. We listen to your heart. We adjust to your heart. Jesus didn't get up and find John. John got up and find Jesus. Jesus, reign in this place. Reign in this place. You're king over this this house. You're king over these sheep. You're king of glory over every single person in here. Your majesty, you are beyond compare. You're the all-powerful one. You're the all-consuming fire. Thank you for your fire. Let the fire fall. Let the fire fall. let go of your neighbor's hand but just in your heart not even with your lips I need you to be very intimate with Jesus just for a minute and I need your heart to just say Jesus I just need your heart to beat his name for a second turn your affections turn your heart turn everything to him and just let your heart flow Jesus these hearts are beating for you we're enraptured by you we're lovesick for you He's a God who answers hunger. He answers faith. And so as a, as a family, we stand and say, come for your lovesick ones. Come for your lovesick ones. We yield, we submit to what you're doing here. These are moments that we don't want to rush through. These are moments that we don't want to look back and say, I wish I would have found him. So don't move yet. Don't move past him. Let your heart beat. Let your heart beat for him.
Jesus, let the light of your face shine down on us. Let the light of your face become the light on our face. We're your radiant ones. We're your radiant ones. We're your holy ones. And because you're pure, we're pure. And because you're holy, we're holy. More. More, God. Just take your time. I just feel like the Lord say, take your time. We recognize your glory. We recognize your name, Jesus. We recognize your authority. Here's what I'm going to do. I feel like the Lord is saying um, that there are quite a few of you who actually need to respond to this. You actually need to respond to this. I feel like that the Lord is inviting you to come to the front. We're going we're gonna to dismiss for those who have to go. But I feel like there's actually a large number of people in the room who just need to come to be alone with the Lord in the front of this room where you're not stuck at your seat, where you can get on your knees, get on your face, whatever that looks like. And we'll have our prayer team. We'll, we'll come around. We'll find you. You don't have to do anything. We just want you to have that time with the Lord. We want you to be enraptured with him in peace. And we'll come and bless what he's doing. But this isn't a night for prayer requests, I felt like him say. This is a night of pursuit. And you're going to pursue him. If you need to go, this is your dismissal. The kids, don't forget your kids. But if you can stay, don't rush past him. Come and find him. There's nothing special about the front of the room, but you know what's special is a step of faith. He honors faith. And he says that it's his kindness, his goodness that leads to repentance. Some of us need to repent. Some of us need to come face to face with the living God, with the Holy One. Others just need to come and soak in his presence. Others just need to come and absorb. Whatever you feel the Lord on, this is your opportunity. This is your green light. This is the end of service. Prayer team, I want you to just minister to people as you feel led. If it's possible, please don't, please don't interrupt what he's doing. Please don't dispel the cloud. If you need to go, God bless you. We love you. Have fun outside, but this is a holy moment. This is a moment that we're going to linger in. So if you feel led, here's the front. You're welcome to come up. For more teaching like this, subscribe to this podcast. If you would like more information about Reunion Hawaii Church, our website is reunionhawaii.com. If you're in Honolulu, join us Sundays at 5, live at Kahalama. Aloha.